Welcome, church family, to Windsor Road Christian Church, and uh, we want to welcome you both in person and online. Uh, Just so delighted that we can be together here on the Lord's Day. On Palm Sunday, John 12, 12 says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is our God, church family. And as we begin Holy Week We know what happens at the end of the week. We know what happens on Friday. And we also know what happens next Sunday. We serve a resurrected king. We come together here to worship him and make much of him. And today, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that reminds us why we celebrate the Lord's Supper The Supper of the Lord. And and, uh, this is small, but it's powerful. And that's what we're going to learn here today. The title of our message today is How the Lord's Supper Slays the Competition. Say that with me. How the Lord's Supper slays Corinthian competition. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are at work, even when we cannot see you at work. And thank you that you are at work, even when we can't feel that you are at work. And God, we believe that you are at work. We pray that you would do your work now. We've gathered around your table to feast upon your word. We anticipate, Lord, teach us, feed us. And I pray this prayer as I pray often. God, help me get out of the way so that what you want said gets said, no more, no less, to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And the church said, amen, amen. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. There are times when I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money that I can get away from everyone. I see the worst in people. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built up my hatreds over time, little by little. As Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview, in the movie, the dark movie, There Will Be Blood. Did you see that movie? You know anybody like that? There's a competition in me. I'm not talking about March Madness competition. That's fun competition. I'm not talking about sportsmanship competition. I'm talking about the kind of depraved competition that makes you despise people. Uh, Seeing them as either vehicles 
to take you where you want to get what you want or obstacles standing in the way of what you want. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of dark competition. And, and, and most of us would never identify with Daniel Plainview. Most, most of us would never say, I want no one else to succeed. Until a pandemic hits and there's a run on toilet paper. Or, or a winter storm cripples the Southwest and people have to wait in line just for water. Or there's a college that you want your child to attend because if your child can just have that college's branding uh, impressed and embossed on that, that fancy certificate, then, then, you know, then, then they'd be set. So you dream and scheme a way for that to be. I have a competition in me. See how sneaky that is? I think Daniel Plainview's hometown was Corinth. First century Corinth. Corinth was one of the most competitive cutthroat colonies in the Roman Empire. Located at the crossroads of travel and trade and manufacturing, Corinth had this intense competitive commercial attitude. You didn't go to Corinth to slow down. You didn't go there to retire. You went there to make something of your life. You went there to be somebody. That's why the first century geographer Strabo said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Why? Well, can you imagine a city of 80,000 Daniel Plainviews? 80,000, 80,000 voices saying, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. But then one day... In that context, a Christian rabbi appeared, ethnically Hebrew, a Roman citizen, Tarsus educated. He made quality leather goods to support himself. He preached an otherworldly gospel, a gospel that said there is no need for competition. Someone has competed for you. The God-man Jesus of Nazareth, the fulfillment of Israel's prophets. This Jesus spoke with authority as no one had ever spoken. He healed and worked signs and wonders. He rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday and waving palm branches, the crowds cried out, out. The king has come. The king has come. But on that Friday, that king was crucified. And three days later, the tomb was empty. He rose and is the world's true emperor. The Corinthians heard this gospel that Paul was proclaiming, this gospel of self-sacrificing love from an all-sovereign king. And they witnessed the winsome quality of the apostle's life, even when Paul was persecuted. And as a result, a large number... Luke says in the book of Acts, a large number of, of Hebrews and Greeks and Romans and aristocrats and enslaved persons and merchants and artisans, a large number became Christians. A congregation of Daniel Plainviews came together to worship the King Jesus, singing together because of Jesus, learning and living the way of Jesus. And they had no other reason to be together except for Jesus. 
And so their gatherings were no longer competitions in Christ. They'd become a holy community. No, an embassy. A holy embassy of heaven. And, and the transformation was amazing. There, in A.D. 50, within the secular city of Roman Corinth was the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who had never physically stepped into Corinth while in the flesh, was in fact very present by his spirit in the lives of his church. Man. And Paul was there about 18 months, and, and then he left to plant other churches and encourage other congregations. And, and he began hearing reports that this United in Christ congregation had devolved into well, back into Corinthian competition and, and competition uh, over preacher preferences. Chapter 1, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Competition over spiritual gifts. Competition over idol meat. Competition in the secular courts where believers were, were uh, uh, litigating other believers. And, and, and here today, we'll consider the competition in their worship gatherings. Their worship gatherings meant for Christ-exalting, church-unifying worship had decayed into a competition over first-class and coach seating. I, I think you can see what I mean if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And meet me in verse 17. Our text today is from 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 34. The, in these verses, Paul addresses a problem, the problem of Corinthian competition, and then he offers a solution. So this is a problem-solution passage. So as I read these verses, I want you to listen for the problem that's plaguing the church at Corinth, and then I want you to listen for the apostles' solution. Problem-solution Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, share with one another. Look at the footnote. Share with one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You hear the problem? You hear the solution? This is a problem-solution passage. As we think about these verses, I want us to consider the problem of Corinthian competition and the solution of cross-bearing love. First, the problem. The problem. Well, the problem had to do with their gatherings. And we need to know a little bit about Corinthian culture to appreciate what Paul is saying in these verses. So in Corinth, a typical secular dinner party uh, would look something like this. A host would issue an invitation uh, to 40 or 50 folks who would then come to uh, his home and and here was the format for the evening. This was just how the culture worked back then, how they did it. Uh, it was an evening of dinner, break, dinner, break, drinking. Okay? Dinner, break, dinner, break, drinking. And the host paid for it all. Uh, dinner would be served. It would be like the first course. They called it first tables. And the wealthier would arrive first because they could afford to. They didn't have to work all day. And at the first course were, of course, the best foods. And then there'd be a break. You know, let your stomach rest. And then there'd be second course called second tables. This is when other guests then would arrive. And uh, they would eat. And then there would be a sacrifice and to the secular gods and an invocation to Pagan gods and gratitudes to the host and the emperor and a toast for the good spirit of the house. And then, and then after the second course, the tables would be removed and that's when the drinking commenced. Wine, singing, uh, conversation, entertainment. A, a standard Corinthian home for these dinner parties uh, utilized two spaces. The first space was uh, the formal dining room and there was U-shaped furniture called the triclinium. Triclinium. Say that with me on three. One, two, three. Triclinium. Triclinium. Tri. Three. Clinium. Cline. Recline. Couches. Triclinium. Kind of a three-couch a three uh, piece of furniture. And fine food would be in the center. And as you can see there on the screen, uh, there would, they would be eating and, uh, and drinking and there would be... Uh, 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 and uh, only about 12 people could fit around that dining room. So, where did the others go? 
Well, they went to another space called the atrium. So there was the triclinium and then the atrium. And you can picture in your mind more of what an atrium is like. It's kind of a commons area, a general gathering area uh, for standing. Or if you just had to just sit on the floor and it was a little more crowded. And the atrium food was not quite the quality of the triclinium food. The triclinium uh, food, uh, there in the triclinium, there uh, there was... uh, Prime rib in the atrium, uh, cheeseburgers. Uh, so in a crowd of 50, 12 ate really well. And everybody else, well, you know, they, they, they ate whatever was in the atrium. So there was obvious class distinctions going on in first century Corinth. And, and the triclinium kind of was an invitation only. And so the whole evening was promoted to To be competitive. You had to put yourself out there. And network. To get on someone's radar. And prove yourself. In the hope that someone in the special room. Would notice you. So you competed for visibility. That was Corinthian culture. But when the gospel came. And changed the lives of the Corinthians. Paul deconstructed. This self-promoting. Corinthian competition into an evening of God-glorifying worship. And so here was that format. Here was the gospel format when the church gathered. There was a potluck dinner. Everybody brought something. Just bring something and we'll share it. We'll put that on the, on the table in the triclinium and we'll just, we'll just share it together. And then there was the, the, the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the cup and Then there were worship activities and singing and preaching and reading of scripture and prayers and sharing and offering. You can imagine how attractive this was. You weren't under the pressure to perform. And so it was an evening of 1 Corinthians 13 love. Greeks and Romans and men and women and children and enslaved persons and freed persons and and artisans and merchants and government leaders, one body united in Christ. It was otherworldly. It was beautiful. It was a taste of heaven. It was an embassy of heaven. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, but after he left, someone thought it was a good idea to show up early. And then others of the same kind in class started showing up early and And then their own little group began to gel. You see where this is going, don't you? Ducks choose ducks. And eventually, first-class guests dined in the triclinium. And when the other Christians came, enslaved persons and laborers, and, well, they were out in the atrium with different foods and different beverages and drinks and different conversations. Corinthian competition had crept back into the embassy of heaven. And the result was that the embassy of heaven looked no different than the Corinthian culture. And Paul finds this out. And I mean, he goes on tilt. He he says, you got to be kidding me. That's verse 18. Uh, I believe it in part means, I believe this. Unbelievable, Paul says. And then in verse 20, Paul says, you know what? Whatever you think you're doing right now, don't call it church. If that's not church. He said, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
And and notice the irony. Their coming together is dividing them. That's not the purpose of coming together. The purpose of coming together is unity. But people are being humiliated. Christ's church is being despised. Corinth, we have a problem. And note this, in verses 17 and 18, when Paul says, I hear that there are divisions, it's not as if Paul is replying to a question they had about this. Do you remember how Corinth is divided? It's divided into a series of, and now about these matters you wrote. And now about these matters you wrote. So they've got questions and Paul has responses, but Paul's not replying to a question they had about this. Paul is simply hearing a report and he said wait wait a minute say that again what what oh my goodness so he detects a problem and then he initiates feedback in other words you have a problem threatening your unity and you don't even know it Corinthian competition has so crept into the lives of some key influencers of the congregation it has created a blind spot ducks may choose ducks but you're no duck You're an ambassador sent to announce a regime change. Behold, your king comes. And the king has sent us from the triclinium to the atrium and out into the world. But when we forget that or neglect that, we become no different than Corinth. And we grow blind. What I'm trying to say is this. Corinthian competition in me blinds me to the needs of others around me. I mean, if my life consists of triclinium friends and triclinium foods and triclinium comforts and I'm nestled within triclinium walls, well, of course everything's fine. Of course. I mean, there's plenty of food and plenty of company. I'm doing all right. I'm set. And life inside the triclinium makes others outside the triclinium invisible to me. And life inside the triclinium will lead me to assume that every room looks like the one I'm in. And life inside the triclinium will lead me to justify why I deserve to be in the triclinium and not someone else. Oh, Corinth, we have a problem. Someone once said, There is nothing more common in organizations than self-deception. And you know, people don't wake up in the morning and choose self-deception. They they drift into self-deception. They drift into competition through lack of intentional examination. And, and the, result, the result is that we can attend an event, verse 21, where one person goes hungry and the other person gets drunk and then we're so de- self-deceived, we call that church. And that's a problem. And listen, the solution is not do more, try harder. It's really not, (laughs) because it's just too big of a problem. Have you seen pictures of that huge uh, cargo ship that's stuck in the canal? Have you seen that? And then, and then, have you seen the? Have you seen that little backhoe that's trying to dig it out? 
And that's not a little, that's not a little backhoe. That's actually a huge backhoe. But I mean, that is a huge, huge cargo ship. My goodness. And it's like, you, that, that's not going to work. We need power from on high. So the solution is not do more, try harder. The solution is, behold, your king comes. Jesus is the solution. And I really want you to see that. Because, see, the solution to the problem of Corinthian competition is cross-bearing love. And that's why Paul introduces Jesus in verses 23 to 26. Some scholars contend that verses 23 and 26 are the earliest recorded words of Jesus. Remember, 1 Corinthians was written around A.D. 54, which was before the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Paul says, on the night he was betrayed, there in the upper room, Jesus took the traditional Passover meal and transformed its meaning to himself. Because when Jesus took the bread that night, everyone around the table, they were, the disciples were fully expecting him to say what Hosts had always said at the beginning of that Passover meal, this is the bread of affliction our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. They were fully expecting to hear that. And instead, what they heard was, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. The Christ we remember in the bread and the fruit of the vine, the Christ we remember is the Christ who came from the ultimate celestial triclinium. He who existed in perfect glory with the Father and the Spirit, he did not have to leave his space, but did so for us. He who dwelt in the eternal celestial triclinium put on flesh and came to the terrestrial atrium, emptying himself in his all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God be praised. And Paul says that in the eating and the drinking, as a community, the Lord's death is proclaimed. His death for us for our benefit and he is why we are one body but you listen you cannot have you cannot proclaim that all of us matter to Jesus while at the same time having a seating chart in which some matter to Jesus more than others that is an unworthy manner paul says verse 27 whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. Paul's not warning. Paul, when Paul says that, he's not warning us 
about getting the giggles in church. He's not warning us what might happen to you if you forget to turn your cell phone off. Paul defines unworthy manner by how you treat other people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing what Christ has done for you. And specifically, we eat and drink in an unworthy manner by embracing a partisan spirit, that's chapter 1, boasting in status, wealth, or power, chapter 1, being litigious against brothers and sisters in Christ, that's chapter 6, exercising Christian freedom to the harm of others. Isn't that what we've been talking about in chapters 8, 9, and 10 with the conscience and and the idle meat? Uh, Imposing cultural taboos and demands on others. Creating divisions in the church. letting, Letting your brothers and sisters in Christ go hungry. Despising or humiliating others with class distinctions. Offending ethnically diverse uh, others within the church. Don't you see? The Lord's Supper is not just Jesus and me. The Lord's Supper is us. It is both proclamation and imitation. It is a proclamation of what Christ did for us. And it is our imitation of his life through us, his mission to rescue us, and our mission to reach the world. And the problem with the Corinthians is that their competition has blinded them. Their competition for the little room has blinded them to the opportunities in the big room and in the world beyond that room. Communion apart from compassion is an abomination. But communion with Christ's imitation is new creation. Oh, I mean, think about this for just a moment. Unlike every other meal wherein we digest food and turn it into ourselves, in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that, uh, that Jesus transforms our bodies into his. We become as he is. Whatever we do, we do in his name, in and through and with Jesus. We become his lips to speak, his hands to work, his feet to walk. And just as he gave himself in the supper on Sunday, so he gives himself to others through us in our vocations every day of the week. Jesus be praised. Here's an example of that. Just this past week, our students put together love baskets for 50 families whom we want to encourage this Easter weekend. 50 families caring for at-risk foster children. We're loving them and supporting them and coming alongside of them. And it's because of a wonderful organization called Bethany Christian Services. That is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. When we keep our food pantry stocked and supplied and supported by by the tireless work of volunteer servants who prepare the baskets and bags so that clients who come during the week can receive care and prayer and food, that is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes when prayer warriors from our church write notes of encouragement to brothers and sisters In Christ, in our congregation, notes that say we're praying for you. Even though we can't be together, we are praying for the day that God will bring us together 
We love you. Keep on. Keep on. That is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So just as the Israelites shared in the Passover meal to identify with their ancestors who were liberated from Egypt, so we Christians who share in the Lord's Supper identify with the dying of Christ on the cross, which means, hear me, we commit ourselves to being a dying church. That's right. We are commissioned to be a dying church. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3? For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, church family, listen to me. Here's what I want us to remember. Here it is. The Lord's Supper is more than appreciating Christ's sacrifice. It's imitating Christ's sacrifice. It's it's more than appreciating Christ's sacrifice for us. It's imitating Christ's sacrifice for others. And that is why Paul says in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come to gather to eat, share. (laughs) Share. Bring all your food together. Wait till everybody arrives at the appointed time. Say the blessing and enjoy your company together. There must never be one menu for the triclinium and another menu for the atrium. And to to neglect this makes us liable for the kind of discipline nobody wants. Look at verse 30. Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Whoa. Those are strong words. Would God ever do that again? Anybody want to find out? Neither do I. So Paul says, when you come together, come together as a community of love and compassion and unity. And Jesus Christ has killed Corinthian competition. Therefore, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, let the members have the same care for one another. And in this way, Christ is glorified. Hmm. Okay, two words, and then I'm done. Hmm. Word number one, examine. Examine yourself. To to examine yourself means more than pondering if you had a spiritually good week, okay? You know, what God wants to know is this. Have you let Daniel Plainview influence you? That's what he wants to know. Now, how have you treated your brother or sister in Christ who does not share your location educationally, socially, ethnically, nationally, and vocationally? And here are some specific questions. Have I forgiven all who have asked for it? Have I confessed my offenses against others and pleaded for their forgiveness? Have I sought reconciliation with those who have hurt me? Am I I harboring bitterness toward anyone? Am I prejudiced toward people? Am I marked more by peace and affection or by anger and offense? Do I refer to them more than we when talking about any group of believers? Do I look down on the under-resourced in my life? Do I find myself comparing myself with others? Am I doing my part to live at peace with everyone? 
can I sincerely embrace with love all who will join me in communion today? And is my conscience clean? Is my conscience clean? Now, the question that we didn't ask and we don't ask is, am I sinless? Well, no, of course not. There are only sinners at Windsor Road Christian Church, and the pastor is a sinner too. But in Celebrate Recovery, we call these questions conducting a fearless moral inventory. Because you see, an unexamined life breeds blind spots. Blind spots breed competition, and competition breeds divisions. And and the stronger must put their strength to the flourishing of others. If we are to proclaim the death of Christ until he comes, then our our church community needs to be a competition-free culture. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of others. Examine. Examine and then share. Share. And here's where it gets personal. So in the the house church, at Corinth are two key spaces, right? We've talked about the, the triclinium and the atrium. Do you know where you are? Do you, know where you, do you know where you are? If so, do you know where you need to be? So if you're in the triclinium, get, get up off your couch and, and go into the atrium. And let someone in the atrium be in the triclinium for a little while. You know, share. Share. Go out into the atrium. Sit by that lonely person in the lunchroom. Go talk to that person standing alone. Write that note. Make that phone call. Take initiative. God is inviting us to enter a world where we serve as his ambassadors who have everything they need in Christ and can therefore leave the embassy to meet needs with love. Who needs your love today? Today. And and before you leave the triclinium, take some food with you to share. Now now then, um, are, are you in the atrium? Well, then you're probably where God wants you to be. So why are you pining for the triclinium? Because God wants us all with the people that he's trying to reach. The world. And mind you, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I don't want you leaving this room thinking, well, our pastor's an anti-triclinium pastor. No, he's not. I like the triclinium. The food is great in the triclinium. It's really good. The beverages are wonderful. Really wonderful. But when the Lord comes, he will remake the new heavens and the new earth into a new eternal triclinium. And and when he does, there will only be one room in the new heavens and the new earth. It will all be triclinium. And there will be more than enough seating for, there'll be more seating than for just 12 people. There'll be enough. There will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, so says Revelation. When Christ's people from every tongue and tribe and nation gather around the table and we celebrate the feast of the Lamb, and there will be room for all who have longed for his appearing by grace through faith. Oh, church, communion without compassion is an abomination. Communion with Christ's imitation is the new creation. I want to be in heaven, don't you? Amen.